Hey, welcome back to the Illusions Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Lauer. Quick recap from last episode. Uh, we covered kind of where the book came from and how Richard Bach came to write this book, at least the way he tells the story in the introduction and prologue or foreword, whatever word you prefer to use for that. Uh, by the way, because that introduction or prologue or foreword is placed in a very unconventional place within the book, I wanted to make sure we covered it and did not pass over it. Because it's placed in front of the title page, it's actually really easy to skip right past it and not even realize it's there. But as you heard, we were able to end up actually doing an entire episode on just that introductory matter. So then with this episode, we wanted to start moving into the main content of the book and starting with chapter one. The thing I find most fascinating about chapter one besides the incredible amount of wisdom that is almost snuck in there, is the way this is formatted. It's put onto what looks like uh, just an old notebook with dirty, smudged-up pages, and looks like it's handwritten. I'm hoping that that handwriting is uh, actually Richard Bach's handwriting, and I'm trying to reach out to his folks and confirm whether that's true or not. Because if it is, I think that's pretty doggone cool. Um, and if it's not, it's still a fascinating idea to do this with handwriting. Spoiler alert, as you go through and near the end of the book, you'll figure out why the book starts with what looks like handwritten notebook pages. Until we get there, uh, we'll just take it at, as a given right now that it's notebook paper, looks all oil, oil smudged and, and dirt smudged and in some cases, I imagine that the publisher wanted to even dog-ear some of the corners and, and bend them up and fold them down a little bit just to kind of make this thing all kind of dirty and cruddy and and make it look like a, a normal person kept some note. Uh, what you'll see as we go through, what you'll hear is an awful lot of not-so-normal jammed into these pages. So starting with chapter one, and, and the paragraphs here are numbered. Uh, so as you hear me say, I'll say, you know, paragraph one or paragraph two, they're numbered and that leads to a potential confusion in that it's easy to think that each paragraph is kind of a self-contained little chunk of wisdom or chunk of content. And that may be true, but it is also very true that each is part of a coherent story that's laying a foundation for the entire rest of the book. And is laying things out in sort of an allegory or a parable for the entire rest of the book. So as we go through, you'll see uh, the way that works for us. <clears throat> Starting with chapter 1, paragraph 1. There was a master coming to the earth, born in the holy land of Indiana, raised in the mystical hills east of Fort Wayne. And I love that opening paragraph because it sets the stage that the Messiah doesn't have to be from some wonderful place we know as the center of mysticism or some wonderful place we know as the Holy Land. In fact, it kind of evokes the imagery for me, coming from a Judeo-Christian mindset, it evokes the imagery of Jesus born in kind of a tiny, unremarkable corner of Israel called Bethlehem. So setting the stage in this book, he's got, there was a master with a capital M, come unto the earth and born in the holy land of Indiana. And I'm not at all saying that Indiana in the United States is an unremarkable place. 
but it's not the kind of place that is flashy, and it's not the kind of place that you might expect, you know, your average Messiah, small m Messiah, to come from. Born in the Holy Land of Indiana and raised in the mystical hills east of Fort Wayne. Paragraph 2. The master learned of this world in the public schools of Indiana, and as he grew in his trade as a mechanic of automobiles. Again, kind of setting the stage that this Messiah situation is not what we might expect. We might expect our Messiah to be raised in, or if we are going to apply that word to ourselves, the word Messiah, uh, and, and there's a little discussion about that in just a second. If we want to apply that, I think Richard is trying to say we don't have to be from some remarkable place, and we don't have to be from some remarkable school of mysticism or some mystery school learning all these esoteric secrets of the universe. We are going to learn that there is an awful lot within us that already sets the stage for us to be our own Messiah, little m. And I want to go ahead and talk about this term Messiah. I may have talked about this before, and I will almost assuredly talk about it again. But I've had someone reach out to me and essentially accuse me of blasphemy for using the word Messiah, even though I'm only covering the content of the book, and the book uses that term. But I think that comes from a misunderstanding, at least for that person, I think it comes from a misunderstanding of how we use the word Messiah. The ancient Hebrew word Mashiach was originally intended to refer to anyone that was anointed. In other words, they viewed that as called by God for a certain mission. So the priests, the Aaronic priesthood of the, the, the tribe of Levi were all anointed into their priesthood. And that public anointing with oil was a symbolic representation of God's call upon their life. They did not view, the ancient Hebrews did not view someone being born into the tribe of Levi as an accident. They viewed it as that person being called specifically to serve in the priesthood at the temple or the tabernacle, depending on the historical phase they were in. And then later on, the Greeks developed the term Christos, and originally it was not capitalized. And that term Christos for the ancient Greeks simply meant anointed. And what it really meant, the connotation that was born in that word, that was carried in that word, included the idea that one of the pantheon of gods or goddesses had called that person to a specific mission in life and had uniquely gifted that person for their mission in life, and there is some indication that the ancient Greeks were starting to develop the idea that all of us are anointed for our unique mission in life, and that all of us were put here for a reason, that each of us is put here for a reason. So the ancient Greeks were, about two or three centuries before Jesus, starting to come around to the idea that each of us was Christos, little c, Christos. Similarly, the ancient Hebrews were starting to come around to the idea that the Messiah, Mashiach, was a singular person, and they began to do sort of the ancient Hebrew equivalent of capitalizing the word 
to indicate that they were looking for one specific religious and political leader. And their understanding of their own ancient scriptures led them to believe that one specific person was being called to be the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed of God, to carry out a specific mission that was both religious and political. And then within the context of the ancient Roman Empire, that understanding of Mashiach for the Hebrews took on an entirely singular meaning, and it evolved. You know, the the meaning of words evolves over time. And that word Mashiach evolved to go from each of us being anointed and called by God for our own specific mission. And it sort of evolved through the teaching of the couple of centuries in the Roman Empire leading up to Jesus' birth. That word evolved into meaning a singular person called for a religious and political mission. So the person who dialogued with me and accused me of blasphemy for using the word Messiah, well, number one, I apologize for our not necessarily connecting on the understanding of the, and use of the word. But number two, uh, it's in the book, and as I'm covering the book, I'm going to have to use that word. But number three, I think it's important that we go back to the original understanding of the word so that we don't miss some of the wisdom contained in this book simply because we're hung up on the use of a word today. I like paragraph two, and I'll just cover it here again real quickly. The master learned of the world in the public schools of Indiana and as he grew in his trade as a mechanic of automobiles. Again, I think that's Richard kind of sneaking in the idea that we don't need to go to some sort of mystical school of thought or some esoteric school of Gnostic learning, or we don't need to immerse ourselves in trying to determine the secrets of the universe. We can learn about the universe. We can learn about the world, basically wherever we are and whenever we are. Paragraph 3, but the master had learnings from other lands and other schools from other lives that he had lived. He remembered these, and remembering became wise and strong, so that others saw his strength and came to him for counsel. Now, in paragraph 3, it's not an explicit endorsement of or leaning on reincarnation. And the reason I'm going to say that is because right on the surface, if this is as far as you've gotten in the book, this paragraph three in chapter one, if that is as far as you've gotten in the book, then it's really easy to come to the conclusion that Richard Bach is trying to sneak in the idea of reincarnation. But as we go through the book, you'll understand that this understanding of other lives that he had lived it's it's almost framed from more of a Buddhist mindset that does not see reincarnation as a soul traveling from body to body to body, but rather within the Buddhist mindset, this idea of rebirth and living a new life can literally be instantaneous. And, and in the Buddhist mindset, we could do that several times, even within the same day. That kind of ties in with some of the philosophy that we have been taught from the self-help movement and the personal development movement in the last 10 or 15 years, where you can choose to recreate yourself starting right now. Make your decision, cut off 
all other options and begin to recreate yourself right now. And that we can do that as many times as we wish during our life. That's actually more, as you get through more and more and more of the book, that's actually where I believe Richard's mindset was on this idea of learning from other lives that he had lived. I think it's, and I think back to myself, in one of my early lives, I was a child going through school, going through public school in a little unremarkable part of the state of Virginia. Then I got out of school and went into the military. And for three years, I lived a life that was in the military, and I had a great deal of learning from that lifetime. But then after three years, I got out of the military and got into a different situation, moved my family to California, and for almost a decade lived a specific life out there. And then we moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and for a couple of years lived a life there. Learned a lot of lessons in both California and New Mexico. And then moved up to Colorado and up to Colorado Springs. And I've been here a little over 20 years, and I have done nothing but learn and learn and learn over these last 20 years. I can't even say that's one singular lifetime because it's had many phases within there. So that's how I understand Richard's idea of all these other lives that he had lived. And and I like to lean on the idea that he does not say all these other past lives, just all the other lives that he had lived. Because I think within each of us, there are many different phases in what we would call life. And I think that's reminiscent of this whole idea of Uh, These numbered paragraphs, each one could stand alone in some cases, but they're all part of a coherent whole. So each phase of your life, you could even look at it as a separate lifetime, but they all join together to tell the story of your whole life. So I think that's uh, pretty cool, and I kind of think that's where Richard was going with that. And I love the fact that he says he remembered these, and that refers to all the learnings that he's had. And remembering became wise and strong. We can all do that. We can all look back to everything we've learned in the past and all the lessons we've gained in the past. And I don't mean that we should look back to the past and then just kind of wallow in any mistakes we made or settle for the good things. I've known an awful lot of guys who were high school football players. And then once they get out of high school, they kind of stick with trying to relive the glory days of a total of 30 or 40 high school football games for the whole rest of their life. And that's one way to look back at a past life and try and extract some value. But another way would be to look back and say, man, I did not get the results I wanted there. What lesson can I learn from that? And get the lesson and then move on, get the learning and move on. So he became wise and strong so that others saw his strength and came to him from for counsel. And I think not only is that setting the stage for the book, but I think that is warning us to be aware that as we continually incorporate the wisdom and the learning from past days, other people are going to see something is different. And we are going to attract people into our lives who are going to want to see if we have the answer to a problem that they are experiencing. Uh, So moving on to paragraph four, 
The master believed he had the power to help himself and all mankind, and as he believed, so it was for him, so that others saw his power and came to him to be healed of their troubles and their many diseases. Now at the very beginning of this paragraph, the master believed he had the power to help himself and all mankind, and as he believed, so it was for him. I remember about 15 years ago reading through the book over and over, and thinking to myself, okay, I'm not sure if I can wrap my mind around that one. It seems a little bit woo-woo. And it was only a few years later that the movie The Secret would come out. And I was already starting to hear about all this all this stuff about the law of attraction and believing and things like that. But the more I looked at it, the more I pondered, the more I realized, well, Napoleon Hill was one of the earlier examples in the 20th century of uh, the earlier mainstream examples, because there were, as it turns out, a number of examples of people writing about our belief creating the reality around us. And then Napoleon Hill put it in Think and Grow Rich, whatever the man, the mind of man can conceive and believe, it can achieve. So basically, as you believe, so it is. I mean, we had in the late 1800s, early 1900s, James Allen writing a book, As a Man Thinketh, and going through uh, numerous Bible passages to talk about the idea that as we think, as we believe, as we think, so shall it be. So the more we think on something, I mean, even nowadays, that idea is encapsulated in the saying, where your attention goes, your energy flows. So as you believe, or as you think, so it shall be for you. If you come from a Judeo-Christian mindset, and this is making you bristle a little bit, uh, there are numerous, there's at least three dozen Bible passages that talk about the power of belief. And many of those are attributed to Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, you'll see many instances where Jesus talked about belief creating the circumstance. Ask and you shall receive. You have to believe you're going to receive in order to ask. He even talks about Jesus is, is even attributed as saying, uh, depending on which Bible translation you use, but he said that he was talking about people praying and asking God for things. When you ask, you have to believe. He said, when you ask, you have to believe that it's going to be so. So even Jesus taught about the importance of believing and that has been understood through the ages as, as you believe it, it will be. And I love the way this is just kind of snuck in here in the book. The master believed he had the power to help himself and all mankind. And as he believed, so it was for him. And then because of that, because it is that way for him, that he can help himself and all mankind, People are taking notice, and they're coming to him to be healed of their troubles. This paragraph 5 is kind of a lengthy one, and says, The master believed it is well for any man to think of himself as a son of God, and as he believed, so it was. And the shops and garages where he worked became crowded and jammed with those who sought his learning and his touch, and the streets outside with those who longed only that the shadow of his passing might fall on them and change their lives. And that evokes the imagery of Jesus. There's several stories where Jesus was walking through the streets of a particular town 
and his shadow would cross over somebody and heal them. And Jesus would become aware of that, and he would turn around and he would say, your faith has made this happen. So in other words, their belief made that happen. I think the most interesting thing about this, back to the very top of that chapter, he believed that it is well for any man to think upon himself as a son of God. And as he believed, so it was. So if we think ourselves sons of God or daughters of God, it can be that way. Now there is a corruption of that idea in a a small piece of the modern Christian movement. There's a corruption of that idea that actually kind of clings to an old ancient Gnostic idea. There was an old ancient Gnostic idea that because God is omnipresent, that means God is within us. And that means we are all then gods and goddesses, or we are all God, or we are all part of God. And that belief has kind of experienced a resurrection, and that's kind of an odd term to use in this case, I realize, but that belief has experienced kind of a resurrection these days. And a lot of people teaching the idea, and there's especially true in the New Age movement or the New Thought movement, And there are some people that, not necessarily going to name them by name, but they teach even today that we are all God, or we are all goddess, and that we are all part of the supreme being, and because of that we have no limits. And the only limits we have are the ones we impose on ourselves. Now I do agree that the only limits we truly have are the limits we impose upon ourselves, but I believe it is not quite correct to say that we were all supreme beings. And I'm still kind of wrestling through that idea and trying to come to a logical conclusion on that. I know that my belief on that regard is colored by a Judeo-Christian upbringing so that I have always bristled at the idea that I am a supreme being, and even just logically, if you look at the the phrase supreme being, we can't all be supreme beings because supreme indicates the top, the number one, the most supreme, the most divine. And by definition, there can only be one supreme. Uh, but I digress. The master believed it is well for any man to think of himself as a son of God. And as he believed, so it was. And I think the interesting thing in here is when you really look at the whole paragraph, I mean, the shops and garages where he worked are crowded and jammed with those who sought his learning and his touch. The streets outside with those who longed only for the shadow of his passing that might fall upon them and change their lives. If you look at that paragraph really closely, you can see the power of belief. And I think there's an interesting idea in here for us to grapple with that we can believe so strongly that someone else can fix our problems. Or we can believe so strongly that someone else is capable of working miracles that will actually go to them and beg that they work miracles. And then we claim that we don't have strong enough belief, or we claim that we don't have a strong enough faith. So the juxtaposition is, 
we do have a strong enough faith or a strong enough belief in another person and in another person's ability to do things we believe are miraculous. But for some reason, we won't apply that same belief to ourselves. And for some reason, we won't believe in our own capabilities. I think part of that is because we have grown up believing that we have limitations, or we have been told so many times that we're not capable of something, or that we are not pretty enough, or we're not strong enough, or we're not masculine enough, or we're not feminine enough, that we're not enough. We have been told that so many times that frequently we begin to believe it. And as we believe it, so it is. I mean, the old line from Henry Ford, whether you think you can or think you can't, either way, you're right. That old line plays right into this. As they believed, so it was. And as the master believed, so it was. This is suggesting to us, at least the way I'm reading it, the way I've read it for the last 20 years almost, is we need to take a step back and ask what it is we believe about ourselves that isn't necessarily so. I've seen in the past uh, W.C. Field saying, is quoted as saying, it ain't what we know that gets us in trouble. It's what we know that just ain't so that gets us in trouble. And what he's trying to, we, we too often believe in the wrong things or we misplace our belief and place our belief on someone else or we believe ourselves to be less than or less capable than we really are. And I think this paragraph really sneaks in there if we're not looking for it. And I love the way Richard Bach does that. If you're not looking for this chunk of wisdom that could be life-changing, he sort of plants it in the back of your mind. And you actually have to sort of grapple with the idea as you go through paragraph by paragraph. And I love the way it just kind of slides on in there. And if you're not looking, it's easy to miss the idea that the master believes one set of things and so do the people. The master believes he's capable of helping himself and others. And then eventually the people around, rather than believing they are also capable of helping themselves and others, they simply start to believe that he is capable of helping themselves and others. So they go to him seeking the solution. You could also make the case that they go to him seeking the solution because it's the easy, quick fix. The easy, quick fix is to go to somebody else, the enlightened master of something. And the easy, quick fix would be to go to this guy and have him solve all your problems. And especially if all it takes is to be in the place where his shadow passes by and then magically you can be healed of whatever is ailing you. But I think the sneaky little message here is we need to be paying attention to what is true about ourselves and placing our belief in the proper place or aligning our belief with, the, with what is more the truth. Yes, it'd be easy to count on someone else to solve our problems and work our miracles, but I think as we continue to go through the book, you'll become aware of your own capability to work your own miracles and solve your own problems. And when that happens, this podcast will have accomplished its mission. 
As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, please share with a friend and make sure you hit that subscribe button in whatever platform or app you're listening. And if you would, please leave a rating and review. If you have just one minute to spare, leave a rating and review, and that will help me to continually improve the podcast and may trigger the algorithms to show the podcast to more people so we can all elevate our consciousness together and make the world a better place together one person at a time. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next time.